We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Ye Old Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. It's a very tiring end to the week, I think, or sleepy beginning, depending on how you interpret Sundays. Yep. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our listener, Elizabeth, and thank her for becoming a sustaining member on Buy Me a Coffee. Wow, thanks. As I mentioned last week, we no longer have Patreon. I need to go back and I need to update all the show notes because if people click on that link, they're not going to go anywhere. So that's (laughs) a job that I get to do. But in the meantime, if you're new and you're like... I like you guys, and I want to give you some money. Head on over mm-hmm. to buy me a coffee. There are a couple different tiers you can have. And yeah, so thank you, Elizabeth, for supporting us. That's really nice. Thank you. All right. Are you ready to get sad? Always. Okay. Always. Because we're continuing disastrous December <laughs> by discussing the Brooklyn Theater Fire. Oh, yeah. Fires in New York tend to be pretty devastating. Yeah. They yeah. Lots of people. Sardine-like conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's get started. <laughs> <laughs> Information was pulled from the following sources. A 2021 Brooklyn Public Library article by Cecily Dyer. Cecily Dyer? I hope I said your name right. 2018 Greenwood blog post by Jeff Richman. 2013 Commonplace article by Joshua Britton. A 2009 history article. An Academia article by Yahangir Usmanov. Atlas Obscura. Brooklyn Theater Fire 1876 website. Two links from the Library of Congress. And two Wikipedia links. Nice. Lots of information, so I bet it was pretty bad. Yeah. Thanks to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes or over on our link tree to get started today. It was just a typical winter night in Brooklyn on Tuesday, Mm -hmm. December 5th, 1876. On the southeast corner of Johnson and Washington Streets in downtown Brooklyn, in the area that is now home to Cadman Plaza, which holds a post office, passport agency, and a few other little minor businesses here and there. Cute. But at the time of our story, it was home to the Brooklyn Theater, which was playing the supremely popular production of The Two Orphans, starring Kate Claxton and Harry S. Murdoch. The theater, which first opened its doors on October 2nd, 1871, was owned by the Brooklyn Building Association and had a seating capacity of 1,600. Oh, no. That's too many people, you guys. Yeah, that's a lot of people. Don't do that. The Brooklyn Theater was in a prime location in Brooklyn, standing just a block away from Fulton Street, which was a main thoroughfare to Manhattan's ferries and easily accessible to residents of both New York and the borough of Brooklyn. It became a highly sought-after production house, which was quite the feat considering its location boasted three other theaters that, although smaller in size, had a longer running history. Mm. Yeah, I bet the size, though, was the ticket. Yeah, so it was kind of like 
in the theater district. It was like on the edge of the theater district, but it was like the new kid on the block, so to speak. Yeah. Seven years, I think, by the time this year happened, if it was built in. It was five years. Five years. Five years by the, the time of the event. Yes. That's not a lot of time. The design of the interior of the building is important to know. So I'm going to do a very brief overview of the space. Okay. The Brooklyn Theater had three levels of seating. So the ground floor was home to the parquet and parquet circle, which held 600 seats. Okay. 600 seats total or each? Total. Total. Okay. The second floor balcony, or the dress circle, seated 550 people. Okay. The third floor known as the family circle, could seat 450, and it had its own entrance and ticket booth. Oh, so a little more exclusive. Mm, no, it or was maybe... more for like the riffraff. Ah, so the separate entrance was to keep them separate. separated. Cute. Yeah. There were also eight private boxes that bordered the sides of the stage, so four on mm-hmm. each side, with each box able to accommodate six people. That's a lot for a box, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like it, but then when you think about it, I suppose two rows of three per box. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, thinking thinking of them as step, like raised. So the family circle, as I kind of alluded to, was the cheapest seating since it was at the highest level and was accessed by its own flight of stairs. Mm-hmm. The dress circle, or the second floor, was accessed by two flights. So one that led to a platform level, and the second that led to the lobby. It also had an emergency exit that went to one of the alleys outside. But it was normally locked to prevent people from sneaking into the theater, and most people didn't even know it was there. It led to the flood alley, which is the name of the alley. Fun fact, at the time, seating in the cheap seats cost 50 cents or around $13 today, mm-hmm. and the box seats cost $10, or around $252 today. Sounds about right. Yep. At the time, the Brooklyn Theater was being managed by Albert Marshman Palmer and Sheridan Shook, who brought the famous play The Two Orphans to the theater in March of 1876, following its American tour. Nice. The play was an adaptation of the original French Le Deux Orphanies, set during the French Revolution, which told the story of a pair of young homeless orphans separated by abduction. It originally debuted on January 20th, 1874 in Paris, and an English adaptation made its way over to the United States in December of that year, debuting at Union Square Theater in New York on December 21st, 1874. So this is two years later. Yeah. So it's kind of typical to like really ultra popular plays and musicals where because they're so accoladed, I suppose the runs are like years instead of seasons or months. Yep. And I think for this one, it was a whole new cast that was starring in it. Okay. So it wasn't the original touring cast. It was a whole new cast. Got it. As I mentioned before, The play starred Kate Claxton, who was an American actress who went on to become one of the best emotional actresses of the day. Hmm. At the time that she took the stage to perform the role of Louise, one of the leading parts of The Two Orphans, she was 28 years old. Okay, so probably pretty established at that time as an actress then, 28? I would think so. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find a whole lot about her on her Wikipedia page, so I... I don't mm. know. Okay. So now that we have some some context, yeah, we are going to go back to that evening. Mm. So the play, which was in just its second night of running, had gone off without a hitch, and the intermission between the fourth and fifth act had just started around 11 p.m. The drop curtain was down, hiding the stage as they kind of you know yeah. moved to the set. Some people later said that in the parquet circle, so the area right in front of the stage, Mm -hmm. they heard what sounded like shouting and machinery noises coming from behind the curtain. Oh. The final set 
consisted of a painted canvas on a flimsy wooden frame that hid the rest of the backstage area from view. So it's kind of like a really okay. big canvas. So it's almost like a, a pseudo curtain. It's, it's trying to yes. kind of block. Yes. To kind of block the very back, back part of the stage where like mm-hmm. all the riggings are and stuff. Yeah. In front of that was a box set, which was recreated to look like an old boathouse on the banks of the Seine. Okay. In the scene, Kate was laying on a pallet of straw. Oh, no. The fifth and final act had just started when about 11.15 p.m., whispers of the word fire started to be heard in the wings of the theater. A section of painted scenery that had been improperly secured on the wooden frame came into contact with one of the open flame kerosene lamp footlights and caught fire. Kate, ever the professional, whispered to her fellow actors to stay calm and continue their lines, trusting that the stagehands would be able to put out the flames. Because at that point, it was just a tiny, tiny fire. Yep. Carpenters attempted to beat the fire out with long stage poles, while another attempted to grab the corner of the canvas to stomp it out. But the gust of wind that it produced as he reached for it caused the highly flammable canvas to burst into flame. Oh, no. So it went from something very small to, like, now the the huge thing that's mm-hmm. hiding the whole back. Yes. Oof. When it became apparent that the fire was going to be more difficult to put out, she and the rest of the actors joined hands at, at the edge of the stage. Actor J.B. Studley stated, quote, if I have the presence of mind to stand here between you and the fire, which is right behind me, you ought to have the presence of mind to go out quietly, end quote. Nice. So they're still trying to be like, you know, go out slowly, safely. It's okay. Yep. Like it's under control. Just mm-hmm. slowly make your way out of the theater in a calm manner. Yep. Unfortunately, panic had already taken over the crowd especially yeah. when pieces of flaming debris began to rain upon the stage. Yeah. Yeah, that would be really scary to see. Yeah. And if you're, like, up and have to make your way down and people mm-hmm. are panicking, you're going to get crushed. <laughs> like, yeah. Other really bad things are about to happen. Head usher Thomas Roqueford ran to the rear of the auditorium to open the special exit door on the east side of the building towards Flood's Alley. That's the emergency yep, one the I told you about exit. earlier. This door, which was normally locked and rarely used, stuck before he finally was able to release it, allowing people on the ground floor of the theater to escape rather quickly to safety. Unfortunately, the added airflow had the negative effect of furnishing more oxygen for the fire, which immediately grew in size and intensity. Yeah, of course. Just a half hour after the fire sparked on the stage... The whole of the Brooklyn Theater was engulfed in flames, and a section of it collapsed. Wow. Most of the patrons had escaped onto Johnson Street, with the bulk having been on the lower levels and closest to the main exits. Mm-hmm. According to the Library of Congress website, the following is a timeline of events for that evening. Oh, no. Quote, At roughly 11.20 p.m., a piece of scenery caught fire after being struck by a falling light fixture. That's not really accurate. Yeah. Immediate attempts to put out the fire failed as more pieces of wood and canvas started on fire. Some of the actors continued acting to convince the audience members that the fire was part of the play. As more flaming pieces fell to the stage, the audience panicked. At roughly 11.30 p.m., Stairways were clogged by patrons from the upper tiers. Mm. This caused human crush as people pushed to get to the lower level exits. Mm -hmm. People simply trampled over those that had fallen down in the stairwell. Many people died as the flames intensified and the smoke became unbearable, or simply because they were trampled by panicked patrons attempting to get out. End quote. Yeah. At 11.45 p.m., Not even 30 minutes after stagehand J.W. Thorpe spotted the small flame that started it all on stage, the Johnson Street section of the building collapsed, sending a rush of air and plume of flames into the air. 
Great. Let's burn all the buildings around us, too. Yeah. So chief engineer of the Brooklyn Fire Department, a man named Thomas Nevins, who I feel like we've mentioned sometime in the past because I recognize his name. Yeah. He arrived on the scene around 1126 p.m. At the time, the bulk of the people had evacuated, and his job at that point was to confine the flames so they Mm -hmm. wouldn't spread to surrounding buildings. Because fun fact, all the places nearby were like the police precinct and the post office and a whole Mm -hmm. other places that were like full of combustibles. Yep. So as soon as he got there, he's like, contain, contain, contain. Mm Mm-hmm. And by the time that firemen arrived on the scene, the flames were so high that they were prevented from even entering the building. So they were just kind of like, we're just going to wet everything down around it so that it Mm -hmm. can't catch on fire. And we're just going to wait it out. Yeah. The fire didn't start to die down until around 1 a.m. before finally burning out around 3 a.m. But they were able to contain it to just that building? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really impressive. Mm-hmm. The fact that they were able to be successful in that is really impressive. Because I can't... Like, everything would catch fire then. The chemicals that they used mm-hmm. to coat things, everything was made of wood. They rarely mm-hmm. did things with brick because it cost too much. Like... Yeah. Damn. That's... Okay, mm-hmm. Thomas. Good job. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Survivors of the blaze, including actress Kate Claxton were rounded up by police at the first precinct station house near the rear of the theater. Kate would go on to state that the only reason she managed to escape that night was because she remembered that there was an underground tunnel that led from the dressing room to the box office on the street level of the theater. Oh, nice. So she was able to kind of like go under yeah. and out where everybody else was. When firemen began to sift through the rubble the morning of December 6th, They expected to find perhaps a couple victims amongst the wreckage, such as the body of a woman whose legs were partially burnt, her face and arms disfigured, who was found sitting upright with her back against the south wall of the theater. Awful. It became apparent as the sun rose that with the exception of a short segment of the vestibule, the majority of the building had collapsed and fallen into the cellar continuing to burn until all of the wood had been consumed, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Yeah. The team was wholly unprepared for what they found in the cellar. What to them originally appeared to be a huge pile of debris was actually a large mass of people who had fallen to their deaths when the stairs collapsed, their bodies twisted and disfigured after they'd been burned. Yeah, that'd be a really horrific death. Papers around the city began to publish conflicting reports as information started to pour in from the scene of the disaster. I bet. The December 6th, 1876 edition of the Evening Star in Washington, D.C. published the following telegram. Quote, a frightful disaster. The Brooklyn Theater fire. Over 100 victims. 65 dead bodies recovered. End quote. As excavations continued the morgue quickly began to reach capacity, prompting the city to establish makeshift morgues in nearby public spaces, such Mm -hmm. as markets and theaters. By the time they had cleared the building, on December 8th, three days after the fire, a total of 184 bodies had been located. Wow. That's half of the upper floor then. Mm Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, families of potential victims rushed in droves to city precincts to learn about their missing loved ones. Viewing galleries were set up for the families of potential victims, and 180 bodies were identified utilizing this method. God, that would be awful. I can't even imagine. No. Well, and knowing that they're there and you can't recognize them enough to identify them too, that's really heartbreaking. Because you know mm-hmm. that, that had to be part of some of the cases, too. Yep. Fire Marshal Keedy noted 284 victims of the blaze. That included 102 unknown bodies that could not be properly claimed. Mm-hmm. Coroner Henry C. Sims issued a total of 186 death certificates, and burial permits were issued for 285 individuals, although one victim had been given two certificates on accident, which brings the total number of victims to 284. Hmm. 
Amongst those was Harry Murdoch, one of the actors in the play, who witnesses said they saw head to the dressing room to change clothes before he tried to wiggle his way out of a small window. What? He was unable to get through, and he perished when the floor gave way below him, and he fell to his death in the basement. Oh, my God. So he... Why would you change your clothes? He and another one of the actors, they're wearing these, like, really thin... Yeah, who the fuck cares? You can... Get out, man. Like, your fight or flight was broken, man. I suppose in the heat of the moment, they thought, it's really cold outside. I don't want to be outside in this very thin whatever sure. they were wearing. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. But at the same time, the entire place is on fire. Somebody can give you a blanket. Like, there will be people yeah. that can give you something. Yeah. Coroner's reports noted that some of the casualties were a result of a combination of smoke inhalation and burns, while others had been trampled to death. Yeah. Or crushed when the floors gave in. Yeah. The first burial of a victim of the Brooklyn Theater fire that took place at Greenwood Cemetery took place the following day on December 7th, when 29-year-old James Elliott was buried. Hmm. A total of 50 people who perished in the fire were laid to rest at Greenwood Cemetery between December 7th and December 14th, with the cause of death listed as burns. Now, this is going to take a bit, but I do okay. have a list of the names of the victims. Okay. And I think it's important... To acknowledge those that lost their lives that night, this is just 182 of the 284 total victims. Not all of them perished that day. Two of them died shortly after, likely from oh. smoke inhalation complications or something of the sort, or oh. burns. As I said, 102 of them were either unidentifiable or were members of families who couldn't afford to bury them. That's, that's a shame. That part shouldn't have mattered. Yeah. I feel like the theater company, like the building owners, should have paid for those funerals, the burials. Well, we'll get, we'll get to that. Okay. All right. Here are the names. William Frank, age 21. Cornelius Foley, age 19 years, five months. George F. Friel, age 18. George Farrell, age 17. William H. Frankish, age 27. Hamilton Farron age 25. Sidney Evans, about 25 years. He was noted as a colored man on the list. James Elliott, age 29 years, two months and nine days. Christopher Downey, age 21. James Dooner, age 20. Edward P. Duty, age 20. Thomas Dempsey, age 20 years, one month, six days. Abraham Dietz, age 18. Aaron Dietz, age 19. Eddie D'Aquinos, age 15 years and 10 months. Oh, it's the youngest one so far. William Donlin, age 18. Joseph Denara, age 23. Clara Denara, age 25. Charles Rowe, age 42. Matilda Ward, age 18. William Ward, age 23. Michael J. Weldon, age 34. John J. Woods, age 24. Henry Webster, age 17, Christian Vilf, age 27, Henry Schantz, age 16, Anina Frederica Smith, age 51, Albert I. Suween, age 22, Philip Solomon, age 24, Morris Solomon, age 47, Mary Solomon, age 22, Lena Solomon, age 22, Deborah Solomon, age 20, Arthur B. Russell, age 21, John J. Reddy, age 22 years and 11 months. Theodore Robinson, age 18 years and 9 months. Catherine Rogers, age 29. Henry Ralph, age 35. James Quinn, age 16. Everett H. Walkman, age 16. Thomas Whiston, age 22. Charles Rowe Jr., age 17. George Lane, age 17. Joseph F. Looney, age 24. Charles Lott, age 54, George Lott, age 21, Thomas Stenson, age 31 years and four months, Charles H. Stiles, age 18, Alveda Theodora Simpson, age 22, Abraham Stettiner, age 27, George Stevens, age 15, Daniel Stell, age 19, 
George E. Laffel, age 17, Isaac Lesser, age 19, Lawrence F. Lannell, age 21 years and 6 months, John Laughlin, age 20 years and 10 months, John McCullough, age 23, James Murphy, age 21, James McLean, age 19, Patrick McGafferty, age 19, Patrick McCarthy, age 19, Charles Mitchell, age 19, Patrick Lawler, age 30, Abraham Leventhal, age 13, James Layden, age 29, James Lennon, age 29, George Logan, age 19, George McLaughlin, age 22, James F. McGaffrey, age 24, James Morris, age 21, Henry F. McNally, age 20 years, 1 month, and 23 days, Francis F. McGiff, age 20, William Murray, age 21, Anne C. Martin, age 59, Diedrich Miltberg, age 25, Alfred May, age 24 years, 4 months, and 3 days, Charles D. McLean, age 20, Albert W. Morrison, age 24, Patrick McKeon, age 33, Henry Murdoch, age 31, Joseph E. Meek, age 32, Angus McCullough, age 25, John McGinnis, age 19, James McGrath, age 19, Joseph P. Mettinger, age 18, John McManus, age 28, John Mucray, age 26, James Murphy, age 24, Patrick E. Martin, age 19, William Pollard, age 13, Wiccan C. Powell, age 33, Lena Pamel, age 16, Louis Edwin Payne, age 17, John Pollard, age 18, William Pierce, age 42, Frank Pickforce, age 16, Charles Otis, age 53, Stephen Oram, age 47, Louis Olson, age 20, Hugh O'Brien, age 20, Jacob L. Ostrander, age 21, William R. Nagel, age 33, William Mayer, age 19, Frank E. Green, age 18, John A. Grace, age 22 years, 6 months, and 26 days, Patrick Goivu, age 19, John E. Garvey, age 25, Alfred H. Gray, age 29, Patrick Gallagher, age 32, Charles E. Gassert, age 19, Lois slash Lena Hecht, age 18, William Hartman, age 26, Dora Hedrich, age 9, Emma Hedrich, age 8, Robert L. Mowell, age 18, Samuel Hawkins, age 21 years, 5 months, and 20 days, James Goodwin, age 22, Philip Galise, age 23, James Gay, age 22 years, 4 months, and 5 days, William A. Gray, age 20, John Keenan, age 25, Michael Convoy, age 18, James Cassidy, age 16, James J. Collum, age 15, Daniel Collins, age 14, Robert Concoran, age 14, William A. Bryant, age 23, Henry Bunce, age 22, Robert Boyle, age 38, William Brown, age 17, Hannah A. Brown, age 36, Claude de Blanau Burroughs, age 26, William H. Barrett, age 25 years, 11 months, 2 days, William Bennett, age 26, William F. Burton, age 14, John Brosnan, age 17, Patrick Broderick, age 19, John Addison, age 26, Christopher Armstrong, age 22, Alfred Arno, age 30, Joseph A. Ashwell, age 24 years, 4 months, and 5 days, Jacob Allen, age 38, Gustav B. Auerbeck, age 37, Amanda Alberti, age 17 years and 6 months, Richard Karen, age 22 years, 4 months, 4 days, John F. Turner, age 44 years, 4 months, 2 days, John Tracy, age 17, William E. Turpinen, age 18 years, 8 months, 13 days, Hugh F. Duner, age 30, Thomas Devine, age 25, Charles E. DeVoe, age 19, John Kennedy, age 18, James Kennigan, age 22, George Croft, age 18, Nicholas Keeley, age 26, Michael Keeley, age 30, 
John Keenan, age 25, John Causalette, age 24 years and 17 days, Thomas H. Chichester, age 24 years, 1 month, 16 days, Christopher A. Clark, age 20, James Cohen, age 20, William W. Creek, age 27, William E. Crandall, age 29, Samuel Calhoun, age 28, Charles S. Jackson, age 13, George W. Jackson, age 36, John W. Jennings, age 19, Abraham Kurtz, age 22, Henry Croft, age 23, Joseph Kramer, age 21, Mortimer L. Cabana, age 19, Rosina Frodeval, age 15 years, 6 months, Charles Hargrave, age 21, John Hackey, age 23, John Hanafy, age 21, Samuel Hayes, age 22, John Hayes, age 22, Henry Jones, age 17, John H. Jackson, age 26, who is also noted as a colored man, Harry Jemison, age 19, Richard N. Jackson, age 32, William Dench, age 21, and John E. Cumbersome, age 41 years, 6 months, 8 days. Wow. And only two identified patrons were people of color. Mm-hmm. I heard, too, I think it sounded like it was the majority of a family. Like, there were a couple of families, but there was one that didn't seem to have a mom. Yeah. Unless the mom was one of the 20-year-olds, which could have been the case, honestly. Or she didn't go to the theater that day. Mm-hmm. Or she was able to get out. Case. God, that would be awful. Yeah. If you're interested in learning more about each of these people, such as where they are from, their occupations, and where their final resting place is, I encourage you to check out the link in our show notes. The last two victims, William Dench and John E. Cumbersome, have been rescued, but passed a few days following the fire due to the injuries mm-hmm. they had sustained. Following the tragedy, workers at Greenwood Cemetery started the arduous task of digging a seven-foot-deep circular trench for a common grave. On the morning of Saturday, December 9th, hearses and undertaker's wagons lined up to unload the silver-trimmed caskets that had been donated to lay to rest the victims that could not be identified. Twelve grave diggers carefully lowered and arranged 106 caskets into the circular trench, arranging them so that all of their heads were pointing towards the center. Hmm. The day of the mass funeral, 2,000 mourners stood watch as 60 singers sang the song Repose by Apt. Following two hours of speeches and ceremonies, which included civic and military honors, 42 Greenwood workers covered the coffins and a floral crown and cross donated by the Germania Theater Company were placed atop the mound. The center of the mound was left undisturbed, where a 30-foot-tall granite obelisk was later erected to honor the dead. The obelisk is marked with four different plaques on each face that read as follows. Quote, erected by the city of Brooklyn in memory of those who perished in the Brooklyn Theater fire. The theater, situated on the southeast corner of Johnson and Washington streets, was burned on Tuesday night, December 5, 1876. The fire was discovered shortly after 11 o'clock p.m. 1,000 persons were present, of whom 278 were burned to death. The remains of 103 were buried in this plot with civic and military honors on Saturday, December 9, 1876. End quote. I should note that although the plaque states that 103 people were buried on the plot, four known victims were also laid to rest in the mass grave as their burial was paid for by the city of Brooklyn since the families could not afford to bury them. It's nice the city did it, but it really should have been the owners of the building itself. Sorry. You kill them, you should probably bury them. So in the famous words of my friend Brad from Doomsday, History's Most Dangerous Podcast, what happened? Mm-hmm. You may be thinking that the fire was a result of poor design, but you'd be wrong. According to the Brooklyn Fire Marshal, Patrick Keedy, the theater had been constructed with better exits than many public buildings throughout Brooklyn at that time in history. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it was about as modern as it could be in terms of safety features. Regardless, there were no fire hoses or water buckets on hand to stop the fire from spreading. Yeah. 
Reports from survivors noted that the bulk of the patrons on the main floor, particularly in the lower parquet and parquet circle area, were able to escape in under three minutes, with those who were in the family circle seats on the top floor and those located in the parquet seats closest to the stage not being as lucky. Yep. Hundreds of patrons attempting to leave the second floor dress circle filled the narrow staircases that led to the main exit, and dozens of people were trampled. Fire Marshal Keating noted in a special report that the stairway was over seven feet wide, and under normal circumstances, should have been able to accommodate the evacuation of the dress circle area in under three minutes. Mm-hmm. However, because people were making a mad dash for the stairs all at once, some people got jammed in the doorways, stumbled under the crush of people behind them, got their feet caught in the balustrades, tripped, fell, and were trampled to death. Yep. Now, remember how I mentioned there were two stairs to the second floor? Mm-hmm. People who managed to get down the main staircase from the dress circle could either proceed to the Washington Street exit out the front or head to the Flood Valley's exit on the ground floor. That was the one that was kind of opened later, the emergency exit. There was such a cross crush of people trying to exit all at once, many of them going against the streams, that the people attempting to go down the dress circle stairs were essentially halted from being able to leave at all because there was so much cross traffic. Damn. When 1st Precinct Police Sergeant John Kane arrived from the station next door, he estimated that about 150 people were jammed on the stairs, unable to leave. He, along with a man named Van Sicken and Mike Sweeney, the building's janitor, along with several other 1st Precinct officers, were able to reinstate order and forward motion by entangling people and hitting people with billy clubs if they attempted to rush or push again. So... There you go. I mean, That'll fix it. Damn. Yep. You're already scared. Now you're getting hit, hit on the head. Cool. Yeah. Getting some sense knocked into you, I guess, if it gets you outside. I guess. If you'll remember, the family circle seats, which had just one long stairway to street mm-hmm. level, was by far the worst place to be that evening. I bet. Around 400 patrons were seated in that area, and they had to traverse the stairs to a gallery platform that consisted of two right-angled turns and two long passages that were about six feet, eight inches wide, which was wider than most at that time. Mm -hmm. The people on this level had to fight against time to evade the smoke that was accumulating beneath their feet and the fact that the gas pressure in the building was going down, causing the stairway lamps to dim. Mm -hmm. So imagine trying to run for your life down a stairwell in total darkness and you can yeah. kind of understand why people would be freaking out a little bit you can't see it's hot it's getting harder to breathe i bet it was hot to touch like your feet mm-hmm. low too one man named charles straub was seated in the family circle close to the stairs along with his friend joseph creamer he shared afterwards that they could hardly run down the stairs and at first he saw no smoke but by the time he had made it to the last flight of stairs, it was much thicker. He tripped and people fell on top of him. And the last stretch of stairs at that point was dark and quickly filling up with smoke. Charles was able to struggle up and out, and he estimated about 25 people from the family circle section were able to exit before him. He recounted that he had been pushed down three flights of stairs and felt as though he had been trampled by hundreds afterwards. In reality, only about 10 to 12 people escaped the building after him onto Washington Street. He never did see his friend Joseph again. Think about that for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. A man named Charles Vine made the decision to jump from the front of the gallery rather than fight his way down the stairs. I would have considered it probably. Mm -hmm. He landed in the dress circle below, Mm -hmm. so the second floor sustaining a severe cut in his groin on the iron-backed stairs. Oh, God. But he was able to stay conscious long enough to run out the dress circle door to safety on Washington Street. According to Fire Marshal Keedy, Charles had been the last person to leave the family circle level alive. 
And barely. I mean, a, a cut to the groin, too, could be just as fatal. There's some major arteries yeah. around there. Mm-hmm. It's likely that everyone else who was stuck in the stairwell soon suffocated to death on the dense smoke. Yeah. In a quote that was shared by an eyewitness in the New York world, a man that was there that night stated, quote, he saw women screaming, pushed aside by rough-looking men and boys. I saw a large, rough man who appeared to be blind from excitement jump over the heads nearest to him and come down on the face of a fallen woman. The sight sickened me, end quote. Oh, my God. We're almost done, I promise. Okay, cool, because I'm done with this story right now. <laughs> yeah. It's all bad. Fire Marshal Keedy delivered a report on the incident on December 18th, 1876. He was sickened by the lack of any use of water to try and snuff out the flames, even though there were buckets available and a pipe that connected to a hydrant near the stage. He held theater managers Shook and Palmer personally responsible, as their predecessor, Sarah Conway, who owned the theater before them, mm -hmm. prior, before she died, had always made a point of having filled water buckets positioned at various points around the stage and in the rigging loft, as well as to have the fire hose regularly maintained. Yeah, as you should. Following the tragedy, a relief fund was organized, and the Brooklyn Theater Fire Relief Association was able to raise $47,455.47, or around $1.4 million today, for the families of the victims. Relief dollars went to a total of 800 members of 188 families, the bulk of which were working class or lower middle class. Biweekly stipends were dispensed until March 17, 1879, when the funds ran out. Of those receiving aid, the bulk were immigrant families from Ireland, Germany, Italy, and Poland. Mm -hmm. Additionally, the children of the only two African-American victims of the blaze— William and Hannah Brown were some of the last people to be taken off the relief list, even after they had gone to live with their aunt in Oswego, New York. Good. And although almost 300 people perished that terrible night, hundreds more were seriously injured. Yeah, and I, I don't know the total number. I don't know the total number for that. I bet it was a lot, too. The smoke inhalation alone would... Oh, God, and the diseases of the day in December? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awful. Not to mention just, like, burns. Yeah. It's difficult to recover from those today. Mm -hmm. So, To date, the Brooklyn Theater fire was the greatest on-land loss of life in New York City until the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. Really? It ranks third in fire fatalities in theaters and assembly buildings in the U.S. behind the 1942 Coconut Grove fire in Boston, Massachusetts, that resulted in 492 deaths, and the 1903 Iroquois Theater Fire in Chicago, Illinois, that resulted in 602 deaths. Jeez. And that's the Brooklyn Theater Fire. Well, that was terrible. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. It was so bad. <laughs> it was really bad. Yeah, so everybody, if you ever complain about having to check your fire hoses and your smoke detectors and stuff at work, here's why. Yep. Here's, here's why your reason. You still care and check. Yep. There's always a chance. Yeah. You never know. Mm -hmm. Better safe than sorry. That's yep. my motto. It's 10 minutes to check whenever, however regularly you have to. Yep. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me a Coffee or our Venmo page both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. Tired of the same old podcasts every week? When you're ready for something different, come give us a shot. Greetings, we're Technically a Conversation, a podcast for curious people by curious people. Every week, we take turns sharing a new topic, and the other host has no idea what the topic will be. Our topics are all over the place, from light and funny to dark and sometimes spooky. We've covered everything from true crime, historical events and people, pop culture icons, the supernatural and occult. I like that. And legends and folklore. My favorite. We're like the Dollar Tree stuff you should know. Except completely different. <laughs> No matter what the topic is, we try to make the episodes funny. Yeah, you may not want to advertise that. Our jokes aren't very good. What are you talking about? My jokes are fantastic. <laughs> 
Hey, I get paid to laugh either way. Wait, you get paid? Check us out at technicallyaconversation.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shout out to the 11 and a half people that listen to us on Google Podcasts. Wait, you said you were getting paid? This month's podcast plug is Technically a Conversation, a podcast for curious people by curious people. Each week, the hosts take turns presenting a new topic, and the other host has no idea what the topic will be. They strive to entertain and educate in a way that's loose and fun, with topics ranging from light and funny to dark and sometimes spooky. And we will have a link to their show in the show notes. Nice. And this week's listener question comes from our friend Emily, from the Drink Drunk Dead and Pineapple Pizza podcast. And she wants to know, as coffee lovers and caffeine addicts, what is your all-time favorite coffee? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I mean, so I work at a coffee shop right now as kind of a casual gig. And I have something that I've kind of made up recently that I only make if I'm working or make for other people while I'm working because it is complicated. And it's one of those drinks where if you were to print it, the person would be like, ugh, how are you going to it? <laughs> but... It's essentially a shaken iced espresso with blonde roast and it's ristretto. So it's a little shorter, a little sweeter, but I do one pump white mocha, one pump dark caramel, and then I make vanilla bean dark caramel cold foam. And then I pour the cold foam in the shaken espresso and shake it with the foam inside. So it's like really nice and creamy. And then I top it off with kind of whatever milk I'm feeling at the time. For me, vanilla soy milk is best, like just enough, but it's really good. And it's also really good if you make it like a salted caramel. It's really smooth. doesn't hurt my stomach and it's very caffeinated. So that's kind of my go-to right now. How about you? Hmm. That is a good question. I tend to prefer cold coffee. Mm -hmm. So like iced coffee. One of my favorites that I feel like I can't go wrong with is an iced cold brew with sweet cream mm -hmm. foam. Pretty good. Yep. Or the salted caramel foam. That one's mm -hmm. good too. Pistachio's coming back soon and I'm stoked. I don't like pistachio. Not I've a fan. always been a fan. I don't know what it is. I've always liked kind of the nuttier flavors though. Like I'm into toffee nut, hazelnut, that kind of thing. I can't do I mean, it. I don't like it. That's fair. What's something good you'd like to share to offset all the bad in this week's episode? <laughs> something good. This week was really hard. It was just a really stressful week. And I think going into, as we get closer to like the holidays, people are kind of only getting grumpier <laughs> instead of nicer. This is right fair. Now. That was one. Oh, I, I would say my good thing is I was able to save enough money in my HSA to get a new pair of glasses because my prescription recently changed and I have a special kind of prismatic lenses. So it's not really something you can just replace every year because it's mm -hmm. like $800 for your lenses. And that's yeah. with insurance. Oh my God. Yeah. The majority of insurances still don't cover it because Prism work in ophthalmology and optometry is really risky. Like if they get the prism wrong, they can blind you. So previously it was kind of like a woo-woo science, but when, woo -woo. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's prevented a lot of migraines and a lot of headaches for me because it corrects my vision in the best way ever. So I got a new pair with the new prescription and this time I was able to afford the little bit of price to make it so they're scratch proof, chip proof, all that good stuff. So it can, they can last another like three to five years, hopefully. Nice. But yeah, I'm excited. And, and apparently it takes a lot less time to make them than when I first got them. When I first got them like three years ago, it took two months to get them like made mm -hmm. and sent back. Uh, now the lady <laughs> that worked with me kind of scoffed and she was like, yeah, we're going to get this back in like a week. And I was like, really? Like, even with the holidays? And she's like, yeah, yeah, we'll get it back in a week. It's like, damn. Okay. So nice. hopefully the next time we record, I'll have a shiny new pair of glasses. We'll see. Nice. How about you? Kona got groomed this week, which is nice. Does she feel pretty? She does. And her wicked shop talons are now no longer 
we could shop. The just so, The woman that normally grooms her is no longer with the groomer. Uh, so that's always hard. She's with a new person, and Kona doesn't like having her feetsies messed with. So mm-hmm. she gets a little nippy when people mess on her feet for too long. Mm-hmm. So they weren't able to do the nail grind that I normally mm-hmm. get yeah. for her. She's like, if you just want to start bringing her in like for maintenance stuff like every couple weeks so we can get used so she can get used to me and we can try it that way maybe we can get her to a point where she's comfortable enough with me where it's not a big deal yeah i was like down with that because she's a short-haired dog she doesn't need to have baths all the time like her maintenance is much lower but her nails Mm. do need to be regularly filed down yeah so yeah she seems a lot less itchy good shall we we shall A great way to support the show, if you want to help us out but you can't do so financially, is to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, Podcast Addict, and or Audible. Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. On TikTok, of course you are. Follow us at Yield Crime Podcast. And we are having a sale on our Tee Public shop. You can get 35% off December 1st through the 18th. And all of our designs that are currently created are available for purchase. So if you go click on the Tee Public link in our show notes, you can see all the things and purchase nice. whatever your heart desires. If you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. On that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.